Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of me doing my little podcast about nursing stuff and healthcare and doing it in such a way that I can incorporate true crime into it because <laughs> that is just me. I love true crime stories, I love listening to true crime podcasts, and so that's what this podcast is about. It's about talking about nursing and healthcare and bringing in some stories to help facilitate that. So this week, I have my guest host with me here in the studio with me, not even on the other side of the computer screen as normal, my son, Joel. Hey, Joel. Hi, what's going on? (laughs) Well, it's Thanksgiving week and, you know, it's kind of slim pickings for guest hosts this week. (laughs) Yep, yep. They're all knocked out on their couches. But you've been on the podcast a couple times before and I really enjoy having you on here. It's a different perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. The perspective of somebody who is a family member of a nurse. You have to hear my stories and see what I go through. And so yep. it's kind of fun to do this, the podcast together. So I kind of get to hear your side of things. Yeah, I think it's an interesting perspective that a lot of people don't you really think about mm-hmm. until you are one of the family members of someone in healthcare. And there is a unique experience there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have a couple of really interesting stories today. The bad nurse story is really fascinating. I mean, it's in a happens in another country. It is it has lots of twists and turns and it's one that I'm just I'm eager to kind of get into the details because it it really kind of it goes all over the place. It's kind of a it's a very crazy story. And the Nick the the good nurse story is crazy too. I mean, it's one that when I was telling Joel about it, he literally, I, as I was going on, I would tell a detail and he would go like, what? Yeah. Like every time. It's like a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to get into those stories. But before I do, I want to take just a moment to address a big elephant in the room of between me, among me and my, <laughs> apparently my listeners. I get an email every time I get a review. Every time you guys leave a review for me, I get an email and I see it. And I read them. I read all of them. And most of them, I mean, literally the vast majority of them are really good. And you guys make me feel so good. And I appreciate it. But out of the 5,000 people that listen to this podcast every month, for some reason, all it takes is for one person to leave a negative review. And it absolutely just kills me to my soul. And I don't know why I'm like that. I try so hard to not be that way. One thing I think that really bothers me, it'd be one thing if there's like, they listen and they don't like the format or they don't like, you know, like too much chatter or whatever. People say that, that's fine. That's your opinion. That's good. I don't like being misrepresented though. And so this latest review that somebody left, 
they made a mention of something that I said on one of my recent episodes about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And what's funny is that I literally in that episode said that I believe in research. I believe in evidence-based practice. I, all of those things, but I was expressing a, an experience that I had where I was working in a very rural hospital in an ICU and deal, having to deal with people who would come in on just regular oxygen, nasal cannula, and end up on a ventilator, and their family members are begging for these medications. And I would feel bad for them. I felt really, I felt bad because they, to them, they thought that was some kind of miracle cure. And I was trying to express that. The doctors wanted to prescribe it. The patients wanted it. The family members wanted it. And I was trying to express what it was like to have to go through through that. And I felt bad for them. This person, I guess, felt like I, I'm not allowed to have an opinion that's different from them. And so they're trying to shut me down and they go on and give me a one-star review and tell me how stupid I am. So I say all that just to say, if you are one of the five or 6,000 people that listen to this podcast every week, you're probably like me and you just listen and you enjoy it. And you're just like, oh, it's Tina again. That's my friend. <laughs> and I'm like, exactly like that when I listen to podcasts. I just love them so much. And I've never left a review. I've never left a review. I don't even know how. That's going to change though. I swear I'm going to figure out how and I'm going to go leave reviews for all my favorite podcasts. I'm just asking you guys, if you if you do enjoy the podcast, please go on and leave me a, a nice five-star review. And you don't even have to leave. You don't have to put any words on there. You just say, hi, Tina. Just say, hi, Tina. And I'll know you heard this. And you're just going, hey, I'm with you. You're doing fine. And it'll just be, I swear, it'll make my day and make me feel so much better. <laughs> I just need a way to kind of lift, lift myself up out of the funk. Five stars would be great. Four, I, I would say, is acceptable too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say five. <laughs> <I do. laughs> Average probably went down from that. Oh, oh my gosh. Anyway, we'll move on and actually get started with the story because I know you guys, I know you came for the true crime story. So we'll go, we'll get into it. CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And and I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. 
I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So when we get into this story, we're going to... We'll kind of go back and forth. We'll take turns telling the details of this story. It's very interesting. And I kind of want us to come from both of our perspectives. So I'll get us started. Ted Maher was a Green Beret in the U.S. Army in the mid-1970s who decided to go to nursing school and become a registered nurse. He ended up taking a nursing job in the neonatal intensive care unit at Columbia Medical Center in New York. Most male nur- nurses don't go into neonatal. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think that's not as common as uh, regular nursing. Yeah, I don't. I have never. I think I stepped one foot into the NICU one time when I was in clinical. So it's hard for me to really know that. I don't know any actual numbers, yeah. but it f- seems like my maybe gut that tells might be me that's the way it would be. Yeah, that there wouldn't be as many male yeah. nurses. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. While working one day, he found a camera that had been left by the family that had been in there previously. Hmm. And for some reason, his first instinct was to have the film developed. It was the first thing he thought he should do when finding a very expensive camera that had been left by a family. Mm-hmm. And he had the pictures processed and recognized the baby in the pictures. And that's how he found out who it belonged to and contacted them and got the camera and the pictures back to the original owners. Yeah, that's that's when I first read this, I thought, why would he have gotten the film developed? But I guess if they weren't sure, it seems like they should have been. They should have been like whoever was in there before. But if they came upon the camera and they just weren't sure, maybe he felt like, well, I'll get the pictures developed. That'll give me a hint. And then he saw him and was like, hey, I took care of that baby. Yeah. I knew who that is. So I guess that's what happened. Well, it turns out the camera's owners were Laura and Harry Slatkin. And they were very grateful that they were able to get those first photographs of their newborn twins. Now, Harry Slatkin offered Ted the job of a lifetime. So just shortly thereafter, Ted interviewed with the personal assistant to Edmund Safra. Now, Edmund Safra was a banker and a billionaire based in Monaco who required private nursing care for advanced Parkinson's disease. The Safra's... uh obviously would like that Ted was a former Green Beret. That kind of helps uh, mm-hmm. him fill multiple roles in the in his duties. Mm-hmm. So they kind of have someone who can take care of his health while also being there and able to protect if the case were to arise. And he they offered him a contract make, and where he would get $600 per day. Wow. That's, that's pretty nice. Especially in, was it like 2000 or so? 1999? Is that yeah. when it was? Yeah. That was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a a lot. I think it was more money than he'd ever made. I mean, it does sound like the job of a lifetime, but he was married and he had three children, so it wasn't necessarily an easy decision. Yeah, because he had to go to Monaco immediately. He didn't have, he didn't, he couldn't figure out what the situation was going to be. He just had to go. Right. 
But because there was talk of a strike at the hospital and also some financial difficulties that he had been going through, he decided to go ahead and make that decision to take the job. Edmund Safra was 67 years old. He was the founder and principal stock owner of the Republic National Bank of New York. He did have Parkinson's disease, as we said earlier, and require constant care. So on December 3rd in 1999, Maher was scheduled at the last minute to work the overnight shift caring for Safra with Vivian Torrenti, who was one of seven other nurses who took care of Safra. And they were at his Monaco penthouse. So there are multiple versions of possibilities of what happened next. There's what Ted Maher says what happened is that two intruders had somehow gained access to the penthouse and he fought them off and he received two stab wounds in the thigh and his abdomen and he was able to make his way to the nurse and give her the give her his phone his cell phone to call for help for some reason he was unable to use his fingers to dial the phone (laughs) and then call for help he had to work his way to the room with multiple stab wounds, hand the phone to someone else Mm -hmm. for them to call. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He ordered her to take Edmund Safra into a bathroom that Safra had designed as a safe room in case he was ever under attack. So she did that and locked them both in the room. And he says at this point, he was afraid of confronting the assailants again. So he went into a bathroom and lit tissue paper in a wastebasket so that the smoke detector would go off and the police would come. Do you think they had telephones at that in that day? I mean, they had cell phones. You he think had they had a cell like- phone, yeah. And I also saw that the nurse actually made calls mm-hmm. to the police while they were in the bathroom and they were told to stay. Yeah. They were told to stay and the because help was they on thought, the way. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Maher made his way, bleeding and feeling faint, downstairs to the lobby of the building to get help. But while police and firemen got to the building, they didn't get to Edmund Safra and Vivian Torrenti until it was too late because they were under the impression that they that there were armed perpetrators in the building. So police wouldn't allow firefighters to enter the building until they had cleared it. And by that time, Edmund Safra and his nurse, Vivian Torrenti, were both dead. So several days later, Monaco's chief prosecutor, Daniel Saraday, announced that Maher had confessed to starting the fire to, quote, draw attention to himself as he was, quote, jealous of Mr. Safra's seven other nurses. His stab wounds had been self-inflicted, apparently, and he had slashed himself twice with his own switchblade, once in the thigh, once in the stomach, to corroborate his story about the intruders. Yeah, during his trial... He confessed to setting the blaze, but said that he never expected the fire to rage out of control. He testified that he started the blaze in a small waste basket, expecting it to set off a fire alarm that would bring help and allow him to reap the credit for saving his employer. That makes sense. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect the fire to spread if it was in a waste basket. Yeah. You know, generally, especially if it's like plastic or something right. like that. But there had been friction between Mar and Sonia Hercrath, Safra's lead nurse, who considered Maurer another, quote, flavor of the month. Maurer reportedly believed Hercrath was intentionally providing him with wrong information 
causing him to make mistakes that had not gone unnoticed, and she frequently altered his schedule between day and night shifts with little or no notice. Yeah, that really stinks. I mean, somebody who has worked night shift before, if you're the person who's doing the schedule and you really want to be mean to somebody, that's exactly what you would do is just make them switch well, yeah, back and, and forth. Any, like, manager who doesn't like an employee is going to mm. alter their hours so that they so that they just leave and they don't have to fire them yeah. yeah fearing the loss of his well-paid job just six weeks after arriving in monaco he hatched the idea of setting the fire to ingratiate himself with his boss to earn a promotion uh, su supposedly that's mm -hmm. what you know the, about the only thing you could think you know that would be a motive, you know, in doing something like this. So he had an American lawyer, Michael Griffith, that volunteered to assist with his defense. He based the defense on the notion that while Maher didn't set the fire, he never actually intended to harm anyone. He said it was a stupid, most insane thing a human being could do. And he did not intend to kill Mr. Safra. He just wanted Mr. Safra to appreciate him more. He loved Mr. Safra. This was the best job of his life. Maher maintained that the deaths of Safra and Torrenti would have been averted if police had not blocked the firefighters from launching a rescue attempt until long after Maher was rushed to a hospital. Lawyers for Safra's widow, Lily, argued that Maher should be judged for his actions, not his intentions. Well, I think that actually makes sense because the police thought that the per perpetrators had guns even mm. though the he clearly had knife wounds instead of gun wounds it was because they, of the caller yeah. that who had called the police mm -hmm. said that the perpetrators were armed with firearms and yeah. that's what led them to not allow the fire department to mm -hmm. go up to the top floors Be obviously they're not going to allow that because there's somebody loose with a gun yeah and they don't want to put their life in jeopardy so there's several levels to what mm -hmm. happened and very mis very obviously unfortunate mm -hmm. no intent was really there which all started though from him setting the fire even if you don't want to say that he set the that all of that was intentional there really weren't intruders yeah it definitely started from him setting the fire yeah and well, then, i would say it started with him stabbing himself i mean well once you stab yourself then your adrenaline is going to kick in. You're going to be in shock. You but even if you assume there was an intruder, it's kind of hard to understand why somebody would set it. If there was real, if there really were two intruders and they stabbed yeah. him and he somehow was able to get away, even though there were two of them and one of him and they stabbed him with his own knife, you would think, well, there's so many inconsistencies with the story. Yeah. It's absurd. Like you can't yeah. even come up with a way to make it make sense. He stabbed so he was supposedly stabbed by these intruders, went to warn the nurse and his boss, and told them to go hide in the bathroom, but he didn't want to go get help from the people downstairs because he didn't want to run into the the intruders again. Mm -hmm. But So he lit the fire, but then Immediately he went, went down there anyways. <laughs> right. right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, lots of inconsistencies here and things that, even though I try to give people the benefit of the doubt in situations like this, because I do think that we don't know how we really would act. I think it's really easy for us to sit back and look at a situation and say, well, no one would ever act like that, or I would never do that. And in reality, 
we really don't know how we would act or what we would do if we were attacked by two perpetrators and stabbed. I think we would be really surprised at what we would do in certain yeah. situations. But his actions just aren't even consistent with anything logical. Like no. it doesn't make any it's clearly sense. Unrational, right? Sporadic in his thinking. I mean, surely wrong. there were telephones there in that building that he could have called from, even if he had given his cell phone away. Yeah. But he was trying to bring help, but he had given his cell phone to her. So he would, wouldn't you assume that she is going to bring the help? So why yeah. would you need to set a fire yeah. and risk people's lives? Yeah. yeah. So, but that's his story and he was sticking to it. Well, in December t 2002, Maher was convicted in the arson deaths of Edmund Safra and Vivian Torrente and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The prosecution had requested 12 years in prison for Maher. The charges carried a maximum penalty of life in prison. So on the final day of his trial, Maher called Safra the best employer I ever had and said he didn't mean to cause his death or the death of the other nurse. He said what happened, what's happened is and always will be a terrible accident. And I think that is true. I, I believe that. I don't think it was an accident. I do think that he did it on purpose, well, but he the, didn't expect it to get out of control. Yeah, but that's an accident. <laughs> I mean, it was deliberate actions. And he deliberately lit a fire in a waste bin, yeah. which you would expect do not spread and kill anybody. Yeah. And you would expect the person in the bathroom to leave when things got out of control, yeah. when they clearly could have. All the things just lined up the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. It was so unlikely that they would have died. They just unfortunately did. Well, you might think the story ends there, but less than two months after being sentenced on January the 21st in 2003, Ted Maher and his cellmate sawed through the bars on their cell and then... Using a rope made of either sheets or black garbage bags, depending on who's telling the story, they climbed out and escaped into the night. And he made it 15 miles to Nice, where he holed up in a hotel and started calling people in the U.S., including his wife, his lawyer, and a priest. That sounds like a joke, like a really bad joke. <laughs> it does. The police apprehended him seven hours later. He had been betrayed by his wife and the priest. Betrayed by the priest. Yeah. That should be a song. And his wife. The lawyer <laughs> was good. <laughs> yeah. Lawyer was had his back. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. So he had another year tacked on to his 10-year sentence for escaping. And still, we have more to the story. This that is was like, insane. I know. That's awesome. And prison break. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's unexpected for sure. Well, in 2007, he was released after serving eight years in prison, and he apparently moved back to the United States and thought he was going to get to see his children. He was really excited about, I guess, maybe getting his life back on track. And um, 
But the problem is there was a restraining order that prevented him from seeing them. So things did not go yeah. exactly as planned. So As has been the case in the past with him, apparently. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, in 2008, he went on Dateline to clear his name. And that's actually what I watched to get the story of the, mm -hmm. the 2008 Dateline episode. Yeah. And I thought he was a totally normal guy. And he seemed really genuine mm -hmm. in what he was saying. He just totally normal. You'd expect to see him anywhere. Yeah. Really well put together. It was bizarre looking back. Because at that point, I didn't really understand that he had actually done it. Because... I was listening to his perspective and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, that sounds completely reasonable. Because like, I've seen in many cases in other situations in foreign, in foreign countries where the police will basically force people to confess to crimes. So I had, I've seen that time and time again and thought that had happened in this case. Well, it happens in the United States all the time, too. Yeah. This is harder when you're in a foreign country. You're much more vulnerable. Yeah, and you feel country. like you're like under all this duress. Yeah. Like you're, yeah. yeah. So Which, I could just see how it could have easily happened that mm -hmm. way. Well, he so he went on the Dateline to try to tell the truth about what happened, and he changed his story. He took all that back. He said he actually was attacked by intruders that night, and they did set the fire but he did it in order to alert the police and mm -hmm. get help. He said that the Monaco government essentially covered the whole thing up and forced him to confess. So, and this there's a, this is crazy, but this story is still not over. It just it's it will never stop. It's just going to keep going. But in May of this year, 20, this is 2022, just in case you're listening to mm -hmm. this in the future, he was accused of a multitude of charges, including theft, fraud, forgery, and concealing his identity, and is apparently going by the name of John Green. So according to the article, he had a difficult time getting a job when he moved back to the States because everyone knew him. I mean, this guy, this was yeah. an international story, and everybody knew this American in Monaco. It was a nurse. I mean, you can just imagine. He's got quite the resume. Absolutely. And it wasn't good. <laughs> So the Texas Board of Nursing revoked his nursing license because he tried to hide what happened to Monaco. So then he changes his name to John Green to try to start over, have a clean slate, and he got a job as a truck driver. Then he meets a doctor, starts dating her, and they got married. But his new wife said that right after they got, ma right after they got married, his personality really started changing. He became really erratic and just unpredictable, angry. She just was really just a completely different person. So they separated and she started the process of divorce. So according to her, he broke into her home and stole her SUV as well as her three dogs. She had three dogs that she absolutely adored and they were search and rescue dogs. One of them, it said, was a he flunked out of a police academy, like for mm -hmm. the for one of the dogs. He could, he didn't mm -hmm. want to bite people. Oh, that's oh, I know. So, I mean, now she's was wondering if their whole relationship was even real, or was it some sort of a long con? You know, I think it's totally reasonable to think it was a long con. I, I wonder if <clears throat> she knew about his past, or if he just hid that from her. To try and get away from it. I did read somewhere that she, he did tell her about his past. He mm. told her about what happened. And, but if, as you can imagine, 
I'm sure he spun it in such a way. Yeah. Just like when you were watching that yeah. show, he is very believable. He's yeah, he is. Very yeah. charming and mm-hmm. charismatic. Mm-hmm. I could totally see him explaining his side of it and it being a believable story. Yeah. Like this happened, you know, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and it was, I served this time in prison and she believed him. After you know they got married, he attempted to draw like fifty thousand dollars out of her bank account <laughs> allegedly, but breaking into her home and taking her keys and then taking her SUV and all of that, yes. she's just kind of looking at this, going, mm. "He's he's not, yeah, he's not." She's just wondering. He's a smart nut. I and you know you made when we were talking about this earlier, you made a point that I thought was really interesting. Because if you try to go back to the original story and you look at it from the perspective of he was innocent and he really was, he was really attacked by these people and he really, for some unexplained reason, did set that fire trying to get a tent, you know, trying to help get the police there. And all of that just happened. Well, people do unreasonable things. Right. People do things that you don't think would make sense, but in, in the moment, Seems rational. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really go back and try to look at it from the point of view of him, if he was innocent, and then spending eight years in prison, and then coming back to the United States, being separated from his children, kind of just really being displaced, did he do all these things afterwards because he was just so desperate and had... All of those things kind of almost changed yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, that, that would wasn't... drive any person insane, I yeah. think. That would lead to insanity. Yeah. Unless you're a psychopath. But... Right. <laughs> it seems like he may be, but... Well... Who knows? I know. I don't know that we can know. It's. I don't know that... It, this is one of those stories that you, when I look at all the details, I feel like a reasonable person would have to think that... There's just no way that there were two intruders that stabbed him and he got he was able to get away from them yeah. and you know all that. So it doesn't make any, a lot of sense, but, but yeah. I, it's not something that we're ever going to It's one really of those know. situations where like a lot of the arrows are kind of pointing at him, mm-hmm. but it's not, there's no evidence. Like there's no evidence that his story is wrong. Right. Because he's not saying he didn't set the fire. He admits yeah. to that. So really he was stabbed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is no way to mm-hmm. prove that his version of the of events was not no, true. No, I do think that there that an expert could tell you if he stabbed himself or not. I think that probably should have been done, but it probably wasn't done. Hmm, that's uh, good because point. initially they weren't suspecting him. They weren't suspecting him at all. Right. And then they started thinking, wait a minute. Yeah. They looked at all the foot the surveillance footage and talked to the people and realized that it was really convenient for that night to be the night that it happened because no one was on guard. So the either the intruders somehow knew that there were no guards on duty or it was someone who was there who knew that maybe that would help the story a little bit if it happened that night. Yeah, because there was this is a very safe area this Monaco and there were surveillance cameras everywhere and there was nowhere in any of the cameras that they were able to see people going into the the building or leaving the building and you know, you would think they would at least be able to find some footage somewhere of somebody yeah. that looked like. Of course, it could I guess them. there wasn't footage of him getting stabbed. So, I think that there is enough doubt that in the narrative to mm-hmm. say that if this was in the U.S. court, I think he might have gotten away with it. Can you convict someone 
of accidentally killing somebody if the intent was to save the person's life. Well, I think that if your actions, no matter what your intention is, if your actions led to someone else's death, even That's if it was an interesting thing, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that would probably result in more people not wanting to save people's lives because they don't want to be held liable if they end up dying. I mean, that sounds like nursing. So I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it literally sounds but, like what, what we go through as nurses yeah. taking care of people because you know, we have district attorneys bringing charges, criminal mm -hmm. charges against nurses mm -hmm. for making an intention, you know, doing something intentionally, but not in, but trying to save someone's life yep. and inadvertently causing the de their death. Mm -hmm. And then the district attorney going, Hmm, well, what you, you, maybe you didn't mean to, but you did. So yeah, this might make my, make you look good. So yeah. let's do that. Right. <laughs> So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Um, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, that's the story of Ted Maher. So I guess we can get into this good nurse story. I told you guys at the beginning, this is a really interesting story. It's going to start out sounding like a very typical healthcare professional out in the public and jumping into action to mm -hmm. save the day kind of story. Which is awesome. Which you know? is absolutely awesome. We've done many of those. I'm always proud of people for jumping in and doing what needs to be done. But I'm, this is not your typical story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so on July 29th of this year, in 2022, again, Nurse Linda Meso saved the life of an off-duty police officer, Detective Michael Cacciapoli. Now, you got to hear the story out. You want to hear all of the details, okay? So pay close attention. 
She is a, she's 26 years old. She's a neonatal intensive care unit nurse, just like our bad nurse story from New Jersey. And according to this article, she was on her way to work for her 7 p.m. shift at Richmond University Medical Center. And she was sitting in traffic. And she said, normally she never drives in the far right lane of this area of the highway because she has to get on to the expressway. Mm. So it's probably one of those like forks and she's always on the left. Because you know, if you don't, you're not going to get over in time. So you're like, I'm staying right here. Mm -hmm. And normally that's what she would have done. And so she really believes that if she hadn't been there in that lane where she almost never drives, that she wouldn't have seen the car that this police officer, off-duty police officer was driving and she wouldn't have known that he was in distress. So the police officer, Michael Cacciapoli, started feeling sick. So he pulled onto the shoulder of the road and started vomiting. He became unconscious. And his girlfriend was understandably upset and calling 911 for help. So apparently when he vomited, he aspirated, which basically means he inhaled it and choked on his own throw up. Right. Which happens a lot. It does. It happens more than people realize. This was a relatively young police officer, not somebody that you expect to have a heart attack yeah. or you know any yeah. event like that. So she pulled over, jumped out, and started doing compressions. Mm-hmm. And she said that, quote, I could tell based on my assessment that he was in full-blown cardiac arrest. So I guess he had been choking for so long that he was no longer his heart wasn't beating he wasn't able to breathe because you can't breathe yeah through he's choking vomit yeah in your lungs and so full-blown cardiac arrest his heart, heart is stopped right? heart stopped so that must have been he had no pulse enough time yeah so that's probably a few minutes from the time it started i mean unbelievable now she's a nicu nurse mm-hmm. nicu nurses i don't know how they do it i'm so amazed by nicu nurses you guys, if you're listening to this and you're a NICU nurse, I hats off to you. I'm amazed at your ability to take care of those tiny, tiny little people. They are so, so tiny. I can't imagine all the little, all the little bitty micro equipment that you have to use, and all of the things that's. I'm, I'm just so blown away by by what you do. And what's at stake too when yeah. when doing it? You know, it's somebody's, you know, someone's baby, you know, their mm-hmm. whole life. So the thing is, though, when she does compressions, she's using two fingers or a thumb. Mm-hmm. There is very different than doing CPR on an adult. And so she had always been a NICU nurse. She just is not used to doing compressions on an adult and all of the things that you do when it comes to adult CPR. But it just so happens, and you guys are not going to even believe this, (laughs) earlier that day, she had taken her refresher course of basic life support or BLS and CPR training. So she, I know, it's just crazy. I can't even, just the. It's the odds of that. How often is that? Done. Every two years. It expires every two years. every 730 days. (laughs) Right. That happens and just so happens that on the day at the time that she was driving by right in the wrong lane that she's not usually in she just happened to see this this happen and he, he had to be in the act to show mm-hmm. her that he was in distress and needed help right. like the odds 
of that (laughs) is unbelievable. She said, this is what she said. She said, I truly believe God put me there and was with me that day. She said, I'm a NICU nurse. I work with tiny babies. I've never performed CPR on an adult. I've only ever used my two fingers or my thumbs to do chest compressions. Everything lined up that day, even though this poor guy did suffer in that moment, everything that day happened for a reason. I mean, it just gives me chills. Yeah. So that's not, um, we're not even done. This is still, yeah. it gets crazier. So when the police got there, she asked them for, because the police get, got there before the ambulance, she asked them if they had an AED or an automated external defibrillator. She had to shock him three times and she had to do chest compressions for 20 minutes before he converted into a normal sinus rhythm. And then when he got to the hospital, he had to be intubated and he was put on a ventilator and on a ventilator in an ICU in ICU for several weeks before being transferred to another hospital where he stayed there for several more weeks. He was, this was a major event for somebody to be in the ICU for that long and be on a ventilator for that long and have to go through all that he had to go through to get better. Because let me tell you something, he made a full recovery and is due to return to active duty soon. That's and that's fully because she happened to be there at the time that she that she was there and mm-hmm. she just happened to be equipped to be able to do everything properly so that he would have proper blood flow fast enough to save his brain. Yes, a neurologist at Sat- Staten Island University Hospital said because she performed CPR so perfectly, he didn't lose any motor functions. She recently received an award for her heroic and life-saving efforts. That's awesome. I, I just the thing is that a lot of times, even trained professionals in the hospital don't do CPR correctly. Yeah, because it, it's awkward. You think you're going to hurt someone if you haven't if you've never done it before. Or you just haven't done it very often it can just be an awkward thing you know you're afraid you're going to hurt someone yeah i mean most even nurses who that's their job Mm -hmm. they don't do it more than twice once every two years exactly even if you are trained in it in the moment when your adrenaline's pumping it's life it's literally life or death for, for someone your their lives are in your hands it's very easy to understand why that would be a very difficult thing to do. But yes, she and just happened to have had that training that day. So that helped her do it properly, even though she'd literally never done it on a person before. Yes. One of the person. one of the things that they teach you when you're taking those classes that she had taken that day is if when if there if there's more than one person or if there's several people, one person's job is to stand there and literally monitor your the quality of your compressions and to tell you, you need to speed up. You need to slow down. You need to do deeper compressions that because it's your adrenaline's pumping and just so many things going on and you can get tired, you know, and you need to hand off. But she handled this whole thing by herself. And the fact that he went through all he did being in the ICU for that long and making a complete recovery with all of his brain function, all of his motor function tells me she did everything exactly the way she was supposed to. I'm I'm just that makes me oh I'm so proud. So proud of her. Makes the heart warm. Yeah. Well, I guess that wraps up another episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Thank you again for coming on, Jill. Yeah. Anytime. And I would just like to ask one more time, if you're still here, if you would go and 
like and subscribe and give me five stars and all that stuff that I usually never ask yeah. you to do. <laughs> I would appreciate it. And I, also, if you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email, tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I'm also on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>